Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. And I have done almost 2,000 interviews on my program with all different types of healers who provide a multi-sensory and non-Western pedagogy in their practices. Their stories help to complete the circle of artistic authenticity which we all strive for. The cats I interview have been making a living on the bandstand for the last half century. They have dealt with good leadership and bad. They have had to overcome... They've had come to different understandings of what love is. They have overcome a lot of adversity in their lives, and they are adept at playing all musics. For me, nowadays, labels and names have really gotten in the way of our ability to create communal spiritual music. The bean counters want to pigeonhole and brand music. The cats have had an impact on so many records that my generation and older generations have lived off for years. They play little parts and serve the song as conduits for information coming through them from the heavens. For the most part, the cats had a chance to play with the original masters of the music and learn to get out of their own way to become part of the musical conversation. Thankfully, when the record business was actually an industry, these artists had the opportunity to gain name recognition through their work as accompanists and leaders by weaving in and out of different musical styles. One thing I've realized and been humbled by is the opportunity that has been given to me to gain knowledge and wisdom from the musicians whose tales I share with people in all parts of the world via the internet. Call it mass distance education, if you will. I have the opportunity to talk with individuals who have been on this earth longer than myself, have experienced societal shifts, and have invented and reinvented themselves in different musical settings in different parts of the country. As a rogue journalist, I'm searching for the fine line of connection from mind to body to soul. That's where the spirit emerges and what my whole show is about, how to create spiritual music. Maxine Weldon, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's an honor to have you, Maxine, first guest of the new year. You know, I'm curious if one of the first time that you are that you were able to experience uh what is commonly known in today's 21st century as, as Black Wall Street in Tulsa? Um, I had heard about that uh, from my parents. In fact, I have a picture of, 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 of uh, the Black Wall Street here at, at, in my house. And uh, it was a very affluent um, area. I'm, I was born in Oklahoma, but I wasn't born in Tulsa, but I was born in, in Wetumpka. Right. And... Um, I had heard so much about that from my parents. What? What? What specifically? I. I just. It's always getting. Um, it's like become a caricature of itself. I mean, I think it's impro- important to recognize it for what it was in the holiday. But what did your parents? Uh, was it just the pride and the fact that it was completely black commerce owned in area? It was. Yeah. It was. It was. You know, when 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 they brought uh, the. Black people were from Africa. You know, a lot of people thought they were ignorant and stupid, but they brought people that were educated. In fact, they built this country. That's right. And and so, you know, it didn't it it, it didn't get really stupid until later on when when they uh, um, disenfranchised people. They didn't give them education and whatever. But these the people that they brought over here were educated. And 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 uh, they brought over doctors and lawyers and and builders, and so when they after the um, 
uh, Emancipation Proclamation and, and they, the slaves were free, they uh, uh, built their own communities. And, uh, and then it was the uneducated uh, white people who got jealous and, and didn't want them to, they, you know, weren't, didn't want them to be uh, affluent and went and bombed them and killed them. And Tulsa wasn't the only country, only city, rather, that that happened to. It happened to many cities in the South. What other, what, during that time, what other cities in the South were, were like that and were, were attacked? Now, um, oh boy, I should have done my homework. I know, this is Jake Fine, you got to get you on the ball. Man. No, you know what it is? I, I want to, you know what it is? Okay, I, it's, I want you to just talk about why, the, the pride, and what the story, maybe one of the most, mem- the things that stick with you about what your parents, why they were so proud of that, uh, of, of that area. Uh, the, you know. It was, it was the, the, the pride that we could stand on our own two feet. Had that not happened, we would have been equal to, you know, nobody. We right. would have had our own uh, uh, affluency, you know. And uh, 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 But out of jealousy and, and ignorance and stupidity, you know, all these uneducated, because the, the white people didn't build anything. You know, they, the, the slave owners didn't want them building. They, they didn't, because a lot of these, the... the uh, People they brought over from Europe, right. criminals. They were not uh, um, educated people. Right, right. The the indentured servants who were white. Yes. 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 And ultimately, so, they, they they got a plot of land. But but after after the Emancipation Proclamation, slaves were for a minute were were actually completely free to build their own communities. Yeah, they didn't want. They didn't want uh, uh, them to to strive. They wanted to keep them down because it was. Oh, someone is trying to call. I'll, I'll just disregard. Yeah, that. you. Dude, this is more important, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just because I get calls from people I don't even know. No, they, yeah, they're, you're good. You're good. Especially on a landline. On on cell phones, not too bad, but I can hear better on the landline than I can sometimes on the cell phone. You know. Abs- when you get my age, you lose your hearing and everything. I know. I, my parents are that age. I know. I get it. We'll all be there someday, so it's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, after singing for over 60 years with microphones in your ear, that affects your hearing. Oh, are you kidding? Oh, come on. You know, I, I, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's... it's uh, but I'm curious about... <clears throat> you know, I read about your... 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 Uh, your your family background. I'm just you know I've interviewed so many cats. Mm-hmm. You know Joe Sample, Wilton Felder, Sticks Hooper, Wayne Henderson. I haven't interviewed Sticks, but I, but Wayne, Wilton, and Joe. They were some of my earliest interviews, and they really helped me find my voice. And you know they're from the yeah. Fifth Ward in, in Houston. Uh, ultimately, uh, they had the bravado and the sort of wherewithal to pick up and, and move to Southern California just because yes. it was not as bigoted, not as racist, and it was just a very sunny, it seemed like there was opportunity for all there, and I'm wondering uh, why your family, if that was why your family moved out there. Yes, it, it was. When my Well, my grandparents were already um, in California, and uh, 
So my dad and my mom, we were the last of the Weldons to move from Oklahoma to California. We moved to Bakersfield. And um, huh. so uh, that was when Bakersfield, it was, you know, Bakersfield was a little racist, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't some of the, you know, like, it wasn't bad like the South. No, and actually, just to be clear, a lot of, it's so interesting because so many cats from Oklahoma moved to Bakersfield. Yeah. Uh, including guys like Merle Hat, you know, the, 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 uh, but, but, you know, whereas a lot of other cats, uh, you know, maybe from Arkansas or they might've moved to Oakland or, you know, no. Houston might've gone to Southern California, but yeah, Bakersfield for what it was at that time, uh, was, was, it was okay. I think compared to yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah. And of course that was work there and with, with my dad and my uncles, they, instead of going, we worked in the in the fields. Well, we have said we I was little um, for a minute or two. But my dad joined the union. They would. My dad and my uncle were the one of the first black men to join the. Um, I think it was the CIO at the, or AFL, one of them before they merged. Wow. And they built, you know, the highways and and Edwards Air Force Base and and so we really thrived. Our family really thrived in Bakersfield. Um, although later on, as I, I grew up and finished high school and college, I knew I had to move away because there was nothing I had. I've always had this roaming, I don't know, feeling inside of me. I had to hit the highway, you know, I'm like Merle Haggard. <laughs> Absolutely. No, dude, on the road, like Jack Kerouac, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to move from Bakersfield because I didn't feel, I mean, although I went to nursing school and I had a good job and whatever, there was just something that I had to, there was something out there that I needed to see and to do and to be. And so Bakersfield was always, to me, a good place to be from as opposed to live. You know? a- absolutely. No, I couldn't. My brother was the head of the paper there for a minute uh, and just, and, and uh, he now is, he's now the head of the, one of the papers up in Boise, Idaho, and it's just so much healthier and it's so much, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, Bakersfield is, uh, well, especially in this modern times, it it's it's pretty toxic uh, environmentally, and it's just not very. Um, you just don't feel a lot of light there. But in any event, uh, were were you um, looking back on it? Obviously, you you were jonesing to get on the road and see what else was out there and find your purpose in life. But can you just talk a little bit about that time? About mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know the viability of being a professional musician, singer, or player, because in today's world, it's almost, I mean, you know, outside of big name acts that have been playing their top Mm -hmm. 40 hits for the last 50 years and and can make millions of dollars, I mean, younger original artists, um, you you know, they can play for the door, they can pay to play. And I'm not saying that, like, there wasn't a lot of, like, people getting ripped off there. Obviously people did get ripped off. It wasn't the greatest business in the world, but I just, I, I see in today's society, this idea, especially from corporate structures that musician, uh, music is a musician's gift to the world as yeah. opposed to being a viable profession. I know you said you had a nursing degree, but looking yeah. back at that time, was a musician seen as a viable profession in America? Well, you know, at that time, I didn't know too many musicians. I was in the my my sister Anne um, 
she had gone off to to claim her fame in in in, in music. And my brother Charles, they had a group. You know, Diamonds and Pearls. They had this uh, um, this group. They had a big hit in the '60s. But I was like the last of the welders to get into show business, and I didn't start in show business until I moved to Hawaii. And mm. and uh, I was I was working. I start. I was the first black nurse to work at Kapi'olani Hospital. And in fact, in 1961, that's where President Obama was born. Wow! You were there. I, I worked there. I was worked there in 1960. Well, so you and, were. The, uh, I mean, sorry, you were, but you were employed at that hospital when Barack Obama was born. I wasn't, I wasn't working there when he was born, but I was... Uh, you were there a year had, before. That's still pretty amazing, yeah. The year before he was born. Sure. I worked there in 1960. He was born in 1961. And, but I was the first black nurse to work at Capilani Hospital. Wow. Wow. And so yeah. that's when I decided to start in show business. I mean, and in fact, I had met Hannah Brooks, and Hannah Brooks said, well, you know, if your sister Ann can sing, you sing like you should be able to sing too, you know? So she said, "Give it a ch- give it a try," and I did, and and I got a job at a club called the Back Street, and that's where it all started. Uh, um, my there was a I worked there I think about six months, and I had a friend who was a dancer, and she went to Japan, and when when she got there, the, her agency said, do you, "Do you you know ask her if she knew any black singers?" And so she recommended me. So they sent a representative from Tokyo to Hawaii to hear me, and then they offered me a, a, a contract uh, for with six months, with a six month option, at two hundred and fifty dollars a, a week. That was in the sixties. That was big money, you know. Absolutely. You're so telling I you. Did, I want to just so, stop for a second. Why, if if you had a good job nursing, uh, what was the what was the the turning point for you? Uh, I mean, you were in show business. You 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 started in 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 show business or in or in music. I started in music. Oh. I started singing in Hawaii. Okay, so what what was the when did what was the first you know ultimately the uh, that seminal moment when you when when you, it was like okay I, I'm hooked now like I th- th- when did the music find you and where you walked away from a secure life to an insecure life. Well, my, my, my dad was always musical. That was always music in our family. So I was I used to singing, you know, and when sure. I was in high school, I was always on some program, some talent show or something. But I still didn't know what it was that I wanted at that time. You know, this is like when you're like 17. Yeah, of course, yeah. And so it was when I got to Hawaii, it was Halle Brooks who, who um, encouraged me to become a singer. I don't know if you remember Hannah Brooks or not. She well, no, I, I, so I'm curious. I don't know that name. So who is that? And then how did she even find? How did she? She knew you from your family's reputation. No, she knew. Uh, yeah, she did because my sister had worked in in Honolulu. Ah, okay. And and so Hannah Brooks was a very famous pianist and singer herself. She wow. did movies and and you know she was and she was working at this club that I started working with, a club called The Backstreet. She was working there as a as an entertainer, and I went to see her. She was the first uh, singer that I had ever met, you know? And so I went up, introduced myself, and I told her, you know, my name's Maxine Weldon, and I'm working at the Capilani, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
And so she said, you're Ann Weldon's sister. I said, yes. And she said, well, if Ann can sing, you should be able to sing too. And I thought, wow. I, and I, I went home that night and I thought about it. I said, you know, I've been singing like in high school and whatever. But then, you know, there was that little voice in, inside said, well, give it a try, you know. And that's how I started. Would you say that, um, you know, I'm curious, uh, I remember uh, a legendary guitar player for Little Feet, Fred Tackett, he was talking to me about getting picked up by this Filipino group in the States, and then they wound up in Honolulu playing, and they were uh, singing a lot of Jimmy Webb tunes, and ultimately a couple of guys showed up uh, at the club, and uh, one of them was Jimmy Webb, and he got connected, and next thing you know, Tackett's back living with uh, mm-hmm. at, at, at Jimmy's house with the monkeys, and you know, he, that, that was sort of the beginning of the end, so you know, that was the beginning of the beginning, so like like you, but you, you're saying to me that while you were singing there, um, you got a contract to play overseas in Japan? Yes, uh-huh. I, I, I spent four years in Japan. Now, so talk a little bit, it's so interesting, because, I mean, I don't like labels, and I made that very clear in my intro, but, you know, whatever that word jazz means, uh, you know, essentially, so many of the cats, they, 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 uh, they might live in the states, but their music yeah. is consumed, uh, and the commerce is driven in Europe and in Japan. So, what what was going? What were you singing at that time? Was it was it, it a combination of things? I, I did, of course, being from Bakersfield, you're going to always sing some country and western, right? And I, blues and standard songs, and I really wasn't into jazz as as you know, if you want to call it that. At that time, I had listened to it, but I think I was more into just, you know, songs that I liked. I, I did. What was it like? I mean, maybe in Japan, but I mean, a woman of color singing country and Western tunes. Can you just talk about playing that to an audience, especially during the the height well, of the height of? Did, yeah. My agent told me that, um, you know, I was singing songs like Old Man River and Summertime. Right. And, and songs like that. And he said, you know, Maxine said, if you learn to sing in Japanese, you can stay here as long as you want to. <laughs> and he said, we'll teach you songs. And they did. So I would I would do... Uh, they taught you Japanese folk songs? Or they talk, taught you... Yeah. Talk, wow. That's, why, that's how I stayed there so long, because I could sing in Japanese. And later on, I, I learned to speak it. I wasn't really that fluent, but I could get around town, you know? <laughs> Did they ever put you with, like, shakuhachi flutes or anything like where it was, like, in a traditional Japanese folk setting? I, I like the folk songs. The song, that was a few of the, 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 the newer songs that I, that I would sing, but I sang mostly the folk songs. I like that. The folk songs had the, they, they do the same thing in their throat that, that black people do in their throat when they're singing gospel. Wow. I don't know how to explain that, you know? And and uh, the folk songs were just beautiful, and those are the songs that I learned to sing. Can you riff on one right now? I'd love to hear something. Uh, let's see. Let me see if I get this is early in the morning. Now. I know. No, we're, you know. It's, Here's one. This is a song from the uh, a, a city in in Japan in the southern part of Japan called Takamatsu. And and this is one of the first Japanese songs I learned to sing called Nangoku Tosa. I'm going to sing just a little bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> 
fantastic thank you so much for that so i mean what would you, this is interesting i mean as best you can try to articulate it what was something what was the what was the way the uh the sanctified churches how did people get their throats ready that was similar to the japanese to sing well you know just at the you know we sing i was from a church called the uh, um the church of god uh and we sang songs like let me see. Let me think. I can't. I do remember. Uh, like Dixie Hummingbirds tunes, or was it even before that? I guess it was kind of before that. I'm trying to think. And I, we could, here's the one song. Once again, we come to the house of God. Every united songs and praise. That was one of our. Yeah, songs. I dig totally. Yep. Yep. Yeah, kind of. It's kind of had that same kind of. Throat-turning over kind of thing. It's a turning over of sorts. Yeah, I dig. Yeah. Was so, <clears throat> going back. I, I want to be clear about something. When you, when you, the church that you went to was there. <clears throat> was there, um, you know, uh, uh, tambourines? Uh, I, I'm no. sure there wasn't a track. Was there any rhythm, or was it all vocal? Because I mean, the, it was all vocal. Okay. And we had it was both black and white people. Wow. And we didn't. It was not all black. It was a. It, and it was a. It was a very small sect. And I think some of them stem from the Mormon Church. I'm just. I want to be clear. This is in Bakersfield. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. A, a mixed and race. They, they, had, well, they had churches all over. They had them in Oklahoma. They had them in Missouri. They had. Um, I think there's one other place that they had them. They had this particular church, but it was called the Church of God, Evening Light Saints. So, 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 you, and, and so these were specifically churches that had mixed, mixed people of co- all different people of yeah, color. Yes. Wow. It was all mixed, uh-huh. Wow, that is fantastic. And that it, is, you know, we, it wasn't, you know, you know, black people had their own churches, the uh, Baptist and whatever, but in this particular sect, they stuck together and they, and they're still together today. These churches are still, they still exist. I haven't been to one in a long time, but I know they still exist, you know. Do you have any idea why or how your folks decided to join a church like that? I mean, to me, it's the first I've ever heard of any church like this. I think it's phenomenal. (laughs) My grandmother was a minister, and I think uh, she was the one that, that, um, I guess, got, got got the family involved in this particular church. I thought... Uh, that's the only thing that I can You know what it is? I, I, I'd like you to just talk about how you view, um, because it was such a progressive point of view in some ways, I guess, or maybe just humanistic uh, way of seeing things. Uh, you know, how do you come down on, uh, you know, the I don't want to say the original sin of this country, but just that sort of underlying thread that seems to consistently be picked up on by... Um, my the you know my daughters and younger generations and mm-hmm. also the media today and just 
this whole idea of that 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 America is just a racist, uh, you know, it's a, it's a white. Uh, well, you know, it started with uh, uh, President Woodrow Wilson. He was the one that really started the white supremacy movement. Okay. Really? And, really? Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, changed a lot of things. That's where the, that's when the daughters of the re- revolution started putting up statues all over the country. Uh, and um, Interesting. So they, you know, they, it, 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 that was some white people who just did not want black people in power, period. And you're saying, well, that was like kind of like late 1800s or early, is that kind of rough, roughly around the time? Around, huh? What years was that? When, when Woodrow, Woodrow... Yeah, when he first started to throw down the gauntlet, yeah. Oh, this was before my time. No, totally, like late 1800s, you say, or what, what, do we have a date on that? I'm just curious about when they put up those statues. You know, I'll have to get a date on that. Maybe we should talk again and I'll have some dates for you. No, it's fine. So, so your grandma was part of sort of the pushback against that. Is that fair to say? Um, kind of, sorta. You know, she wasn't that political at all. Uh, Absolutely, but, they, but that doesn't that doesn't mean you can't be, uh, you know, uh, yeah. an activist. You know. Yeah. But, well, the thing is that since uh, that was in you know my environment, I was never I was never afraid of white people. Right. That's more what I was trying to get at is what's your what's your concept of I just sort of believe that we are uh, we're all the same we're all one human race I mean a lot of people don't want to hear that but you know I I just feel like you must I would love to know your perception of that considering you were uh, brought up especially spiritually in a very open environment well my dad used to say you know they're good people they're good White people, they're good black people. They're bad white people. They're bad black people. Right. And, and, and you know, you can't say if you see a white man, you can't say he's a bad person until you know, really know he's a bad person. And, you, you know, in other words, you give a person a chance to, to let you know what side of the fence that he's on. And so, and, and even when I was in, in uh, a grade school, I went, to, I went, it was all in California, it was all integrated. I've never gone to a full all-black all school. Yeah, it was uh, one of, what was it, late 50s? Yeah. Yeah, mid and to late. I started, I started to, to uh, a high school in 1954. When you were in Japan during the, really, the civil rights movement of that, that kind of 10-year period, were you keeping abreast of the situation in the States and how... How a much? Bit. I wasn't. I, it, you know, there it was sort of. You didn't hear too much. Well, definitely it, then. I mean, there was no internet. Uh, I don't. I don't even know what, how you no were getting internet, your news no at that time. Video. Yeah. And uh, you could. There were a couple. Of, you could. Uh, I. I would listen to the armed forces um, uh, radio. Right. And that was all throughout uh, Southeast Asia, and where you guys, where I hear all the music. You know, all the all the. The, when uh, uh, Motown came into into be, this is like in the '60s. I went to Japan from us there from 1961 to 1965. Wow, wow! And so, you know, I, I could knew all the music, and 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 of course, when when um, 
President Kennedy was killed. I, I was in Japan at that time, and you could that that was on television, you know. Um, but it, it all the all the places that I went in Japan, I never found any or felt any kind of um, prejudice or whatever. I, I I lived very well there. I guess because I could speak the language. Well, no, I'm going to tell you why they res- they respected. You, they respected the musicians as geniuses. They didn't care what yeah. color he was. I mean, that was with the, you know, John Hendricks. I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet him, but um, the great singer. I have heard of him, yes. Yeah, you know, I, I interviewed him a few years ago, and, uh, you know, he just he just said to me, he's like, you know, without the Sicilians, there'd be no jazz in America, only because those cats recognized uh, the genius of people of color. I mean, they used to. I mean, wh- wh- whatever you want to say about it, they gave them jobs. They they um, they put them up on the bandstand. They recognized their genius, and the Japanese are yeah. just. When, whenever people singer uh, performers like Louis Armstrong and all these people came to Japan, they rolled out the red carpet. Oh, and then, and that continued on for good music all across the board because I've interviewed yeah. all the cats from. All the accompanists from James Taylor's bands, and when and yeah. when those guys would get off the plane, I mean that's about as white folk mm-hmm. as you can get. All the cats had Japanese had the records, waiting for them to sign oh, absolutely. them. Absolutely, you know. In fact, they still have my records. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love the Japanese so much. I, I just I the soul, and, and, man. And the thing was, when, when, whenever any of the artists came to town, Louis Armstrong, I, was, I had a chance to go and meet them. I would be the only black person in the audience. Let's talk. I want you to talk about meeting Louis Armstrong. That's a also. I'm not sure. Did you ever the the one person and she passed away a couple years ago. The one cat whose story kind of is parallel to yours is a woman named Denise Perrier. Did you ever know her? Denise Perrier. Yeah, great singer. I'll send you the interview because she was doing tours on on ships, uh, uh, U.S. in Vietnam and Japan. Anyway, uh, she's. Uh, yeah, I'm going to send you the interview so you can listen okay. to it. It just it, what, like can you? She met Louis Armstrong. Who can you talk about meeting some of these, the original masters of music? I think that that to me is those cats were fearless, and I'm even oh, going, yeah. you know, Duke Ellington, and yeah, and they were beyond yeah. genius, you know. When I met, I I went to uh, to he was playing at a at a one of the music halls. I think it was the Nitigate. Nitsugeki, I gave him my Japanese, I forgot now. Uh, and so I went to see them, he and the band. And I got backstage, and then the band was shocked. He was like, <laughs> what are you doing here? I said, I live here. And I about my, you know, living there and singing and, and whatever. And he was just, he just came over and, and grabbed my hand and we shook him, you know, and gave me a hug. Oh, my God, I love this so much. And warm, and I was felt welcome. And the same with the Ella Fitzgerald, I met her. Talk about um, that. Talk about Ella. I was going to ask you about, there was a few few cats like Sarah Vaughn and Ella. And, and I knew Sarah Vaughn. I, I met, well, I met Sarah Vaughn here in Los Angeles. We, we were very good friends. Well, well, you met her after you came back, though. Yeah, okay. After I came back to to uh, and start working in Los Angeles, and you just talk about—I mean, Ella just like Ella Fitzgerald in Japan. Japan. I mean, that is insane. Hmm? I just think that's, that's just one of the coolest. That must have been such a cool experience. I mean, it was wonderful. I mean, I, I felt 
a, a part of the gang and the and the band was so elated the the fact that that was a black person living in Japan. Right. They didn't know they didn't know your they didn't know Maxine Weldon. They just they saw you come into the room. They're like, "What is this woman doing here?" And yes. you're like, "I'm actually a, I I perform mu- I sing here. That's unbelievable." Yes. And I introduced myself. I'm told I was working there and and as, as a singer. I mean, this is long before I had made records or anything like that. Did did and, did some uh, of the cats? I'm not sure who was in her band, but did they would they come and sit in with you and your and your gigs too to see what you were really all about? Yes, we, we went up. The, well, the the last um, we flew up that next day. I mean, the, uh, uh, we booked a, a, a town called Sendai. Yeah, sure. I was I was working at a club in Sendai, and they were doing a concert in Sendai, and we all flew up on the same plane together. And after, I guess, they, when they finished with their um, concert, the band came to the club where I was working. And, of course, Louis did. I mean, that, you know, he was, he was uh, probably tired. <laughs> wait, oh, wait, hold on. This was a Louis Ella uh, tour. But the, but, the, but the band came. Oh, this and, is classic, dude. Yeah, the band came to see me, and we sat and talked, and, and um, you know, I introduced to some of the the... The drinks that was they were and it uh, that was popular. Sure. There. What were what were the popular drinks there? Oh God, I've forgotten now. <laughs> no, I mean, there's so much. That's just so you know. Because I don't. Did you ever meet the percussionist Emil Richards? Mm. I mean, he's been on every rest in peace, Uncle Emil. I mean, the guy was was with Sinatra and with George Shearing. But the point is that he went to Sendai with. Uh, in Stan Kenton's band, there was this is after World War II, but that's really why the love of music and Americans is yeah. there, is yeah. because the music they went up and down the island, they went up and down Japan playing together, and yeah. then ultimately, uh, you know, Hampton Hawes was over there, and ultimately Toshiko Akiyoshi got discovered there and got brought to the states. So I mean, I know that you came in in the '60s, but that 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 to me is like. Really, first of all, who who were the who were some of the cats in your band? In, I'm sorry, I'm saying like the rhythm section in your band in Japan. Who were those guys? Well, I, I, well, I did the the, the uh, clubs, and they had eighteen piece bands, eighteen p- pieces. Japanese and, ca- Japanese cats playing music. I, I, I worked all the the big clubs in in Tokyo. They didn't have small clubs at that time. And and uh, eighteen. You know, well, I just want to say eighteen piece band. You were you, they were backing you up. Yes. And these were all Jap. They were all Japanese cats. All Japanese. Oh my! Are you kidding me? I'm very serious. No, I, used, I mean, if, at forty three, this is blowing my mind. First first interview of twenty three for me. You know. Um, yeah. No wait, hold on. So it was upright bass, drums, horns, guitar. What was the instrumentation? Well, you, I'll tell you what happened when I first went over there. I, I worked in, uh, with a, a guy in in Hawaii. His name was Ernie Washington, and he was the arranger for Dizzy Gillespie and all these people. Oh my God! He did, uh, he did my chart. I had I had four piece, uh, three piece chart. I'm sorry. And when I went to Japan, I sent my charts to the agency, and they had uh, a very famous guy from from the Philippines. His name was Pepe Murto. And he he created the eighteen piece band around my three piece chart. Whoa! So 
So when I work the clubs, I work with, with big bands. That's how I, I, even today, I always enjoyed working with big bands because I was used to it as a, as a kid. I mean, a, a younger person. I was like 20 at that time. I want to be clear, though. When you're talking about the arrangement, I mean, you're not talking you're not talking original Dizzy tunes. You're talking like American songbook tunes or what? American songs, yeah. Wow. Songs like uh, Summertime, Old Man River, uh, uh I don't. God, I've got my, uh, my. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the lexicon, I mean, there's just so many uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, all these great, uh, you know, mm-hmm. tunes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about? In, I mean, in your mind, though, I mean, this is a fascinating question because there were no in-ear monitors at that time. Uh, a lot of the time, you were playing out of antiquated PA systems. I don't know if the clubs in Japan. I don't think the. Technology in Japan really got heady till maybe the seventies. Oh, no, no, no. In Japan, you had first class musicians. First class. No. What about the what about the the PA's you were playing out of? Could you really hear yourself? Absolutely. Wow. Everything wow. In Japan, first class. First class. That's insane. That is absolute. You're you're telling me eighteen piece band. Yes, ma'am. Crystal yes, clear. Yes. Yes. Well, I am floored. In nineteen sixty four. Yes. Oh yes. my God. What are the keys? So, what are the keys to swing in a big band for Maxine Weldon? I want to know this because I think uh, in today's, well, I can't really speak for uh, you know. There, there, we don't have that touring circuit that was once so lush and provided for so many. Uh, you know, whether it was Sinatra, Tony Bennett, uh, the list goes on. You know, even the Jazzers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what would you say are the keys to swinging a big band for Maxine Weldon? Well, the, the, with the, because I had a, I did a combination of American songs and Japanese songs, so it was very easy for them to work with me because the Japanese songs they knew automatically. And, and I had those in, in 18 piece, pieces as well. Wow. And the, there were some, some of the clubs worked, they had 16 pieces, some they had 14 pieces. But in the big club, they had 18 pieces. And uh, so, and the songs that I did, like, you know, Old Man River and Summertime, and I'm trying to think of my own um, resume, which I've forgotten, is blocked out of my mind. Um, but they were um, popular songs, because uh, it wasn't anything, any kind of new song that, you know, and of course, here in America, all the songs that, that they were doing playing on the radio were all new. I wasn't doing that kind of music. Sure. And so when I w- went to Japan, I was doing the, I guess you would call it the older music, like with with the uh, lot of from from the musicals. Absolutely. You know? no, I mean, the idea of like all those, you know, Kingston Trio, that stuff was off the grid. You weren't doing like the, what was popular in the early '60s. I mean, the Beatles kind of hit yeah. around '64, but I mean, even yeah. before that, it was like. <laughs> there was also just like incredible. I mean, I know you weren't necessarily uh, ensconced in jazz at that time, but just like the the jazz of the early '60s was in. I mean, it was the birth of the cool time, which was incredible. Yeah, I mean, just you would call them standard songs. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, what what ultimately uh, you were eating amazing food. You had state of the art techno, uh, you know, PA systems. You had cooking bands. You were lear- you learned Japanese. You were making dough. 
what brought you back to the States? Well, I got married, and I went to, I went to Korea, and I, hmm. I worked um, the... I did the military clubs in Korea. I didn't go there. With, I went with the special services. And then I, I went back to Korea, and I, I worked, uh, did the Korea, Korean music hall, and I met this Korean guy. We fell in love and got married. And, uh, that's, and, and I found that later on that I was pregnant. And so that's when I decided I would come home because I knew that in Bakersfield, I could, I, since I had worked in medicine and at the hospitals, I knew I could get first-class care. Interesting. After having a baby. That was, not, that was not necessarily the case in Japan or Korea. Well, you could, but it's, I, I wanted to come home at that time. I, I dig. I totally dig. Yeah. And, in fact, I, and he's uh, uh, alive and well today, and he's very successful and handsome and beautiful. And he has, he's in, not in... Uh, he, he's a uh, he's an agent for for a commercial. You know, he do when kids and and people do commercials on television. He chooses them, yeah. Yeah, he he has a very successful agency. You're talking about your son now. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And so, uh, and I'm very proud of him. I mean, my marriage didn't last that long, but it, we got something very beautiful out of it. So I'm happy with well, that. Well, I, I I'm with you there. Um, you know, like. Ultimately, I mean, I have to be honest. I mean, my favorite record label is Mainstream Records by Bob Shad, and I just yes. I wanted I I've I've had I have those records. I used to have your records on me. I just I still have my records. I would love you to talk about how that came to fruition because um, I met I yeah. met Bobby Shad through John Levy. Uh, there was a when I was working in San Francisco when I started back singing again after the, I had the baby, and uh, 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 well after I had when I, during the time after they had the baby I wor- start working on the, the nurses registry to you know so I could earn some money. Sure. And then I started back singing again, and then there was this gentleman who came up from Los Angeles I guess looking around trying to, to find singers and he came to the club where I was working. And introduced himself to me, and he worked with John Levy. And John Levy, he, he, I guess he called John Levy here in Los Angeles, and John Levy came up to San Francisco and signed me up, and that's how I got with Bobby Shad. <laughs> now, I have, this is so fascinating. I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, I've done 2,000 interviews, and I don't have a lot of cats uh, that directly worked with you, but I need you to tell me about this gig at the Paper Doll. Oh. Because 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 my dear brother, my uncle George Marsh, the drummer with the Jerry Hahn Brotherhood, said that well, they that's who I work with, they backed Hahn. you up, man. I, I, so first of all, why did? Here's the question: After you saved up some dough, do, doing some nursing, and your and your son was alive and well, what what brought you to San Francisco? Well, I I moved from when I came back from Korea. That's where I moved. My my sister lived in. In Richmond. Wow. And I moved in with her, and I said, oh, we, you know, you, after living in, in, and traveling around Asia, the last per- place you want to live is Richmond, California. <laughs> so, I don't think anything's changed either. I mean, it's pretty rough out there still. Uh, anyway, I said, we're both, she was working in San Francisco, and so it was I. It was That was when I started back working out of the nurse's registry. Interesting. And I said, why don't we move to San Francisco? 
She said, well, oh, my friends are here. I said, well, I, don't, I know your friends are here. I said, but I don't want to live here. I said, we, we could have so much fun finding us a beautiful apartment in San Francisco. So I talked her into it. And that's how we moved to San Francisco. And then when my sister Ann came up, she started working at the, it, it was, they, they later on named it at the, named it the, the uh, paper doll, but at first they used to call it the, the 524 Club. The 524, where was five, it located? Where was it located? And it was in North Beach. So it was around the Red Balloon and, and Carol, yeah, yeah. Carol Dota's uh, Club? Yes, yes. Holy cat, Maxie Weldon blowing my mind right Wait, hold on, this was, <laughs> was this like six, was this like. No, I, I, I no, I, because I mean, dude, she was. I have there. I have interviews with cats who were playing milestone twenty minute milestones while she was, you know, dancing nude on the on the yeah. uh, on the bandstand. Yeah. So were you? Yeah. Were, were this was? Uh, were you singing with strippers, or or is it just a straight? No, no, no. Yeah. Oh, no, at the five. No, this five two four was a semi. It was it was half gay and half straight. It was like the only like jazz club. At that, you know, in that area. What year? I'm sorry. What year was this, by the way? This was in 1967. And you're telling me that, and I, how the heck? Because my uh, 67. I mean, and then you get in with one of the most experimental fusion bands I've ever heard in my life with the Jerry Hahn Brotherhood. I mean, I could not wow. believe that. Yeah. So, can you talk about the, how ultimately you wound up working with those cats? And it was Jerry Hahn on um, Randy Randolph on piano, Jerry Hahn on guitar. Uh, God, I can't think who was on bass. Mel right? Graves, I think. Mel Graves and um, oh God, it was another guy. I can't think of his name. What was it? Was it uh, was George Marsh on drums? George, George, thank you. So it was. They, can you just were, talk about how, like, you walked in there one day and and like there. No, Anne, they right? were working with Ann Weld. So they were working yeah. with your sister. They were working with my sister. And then when she went into the theater, she said, well, Maxine, why don't you come and work at the club? And that's how I started back singing again. When you say she went in the, so she went to like, she. That was a, a theater club. They, they came they, and she went and, you know, started doing plays and she went to Broadway and stuff. Right, like that. right, right, right. So, so the 524 was a, was a, was a jazz club. You didn't, yes. there, there was no theater going on there. But she, no, uh-uh, so jazz. she was, what was, what was her, so she was singing kind of similar standard tunes or original tunes? No, kind of, sort of. Yeah. No, she was doing a lot of Bob Dylan songs. Wow. Like that. Oh, I'm yeah. loving this, dude. Wait, and so wait, what, so when you got it, was that the first time you started, I mean, I know you sang a lot of traditional Japanese folk tunes, but would it, is it fair to say that you started to bust out some originals with those guys? Yeah, well, at, at, that's when I'm, my, my, uh, uh, music sort of changed at that time. I started doing Bob Dylan and, and I will, of course, I always mix some country and western in there and, and, uh, you know, doing more modern songs at that particular time and of course jerry Hahn did my charts and we you know we the i don't remember exactly i have to look back at my resume i can think off the top of my head right now uh about the songs that i did but i know it they changed from what i was doing in japan but i would always sing a japanese song for my audience you know, let them know that I, so that's something you don't forget. 
Well, that is, first of all, please tell me that you worked some other clubs, too, besides the Paper Doll. Yeah, there were, there, there were two other clubs that I worked in in San Francisco, but I mainly worked at the, it was called 524, then later on it changed to the, the Paper Doll. What were the other clubs, though? The other club, it wasn't too many, uh, what was another club called Leonora's. Leonora's? But the, the, the pipe, I mean, the owners didn't, the people were standing in line to get in there to hear me. So I worked there for quite some time. And usually when I worked at the club, I did pretty good, you know. And so, you know, and they they paid me very well. That's why I didn't ever work a club in just two weeks and they would let me go. I stayed like a couple of years. Absolutely. No, I, I just think it's, I mean, t- can you talk a little bit about how, um, I, I you know, ultimately the um that period of time was so incredibly uh, fertile as it related to just the inner the 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 cross pollinization of music that was going on you had yeah. you know i mean i'm not saying that you wound up on a bill at the fillmore west but did, were you were you aware or hip to oh, yeah. to janice and, and jefferson airplane did you get a chance to ever like i met, I met janice joplin i didn't ever meet the Jeff, jefferson airplane you met Janis Joplin. Yeah. And uh, uh, I met her. I went to see her at the Fillmore West with, with uh, Jerry Hahn. And I just met her saying, how are you doing, whatever. And because and, she knew the owner of the paper doll. Oh, this and is so, classic. Uh, wait, wait, Hahn. So Hahn, was Hahn kind of a conduit for you to get to see some of these? these yeah, what? We, went, we went to see her at the uh, uh, um, Fillmore. Fillmore. We went backstage, and that's how I met her. God, that is sick. Because I was going to ask you about the Fillmore District. Um, you know, ultimately, Bill Graham took it over. By 67, Bill Graham had taken it over. But were you aware of the history? Fillmore Fillmore District was very similar to to Tulsa, what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview. Yeah. All, all black I, commerce. I wasn't that much aware of it because, you know, I had just gotten on the music scene in San Francisco at the, in 1967. Yeah, it wasn't like you were like a historian, like digging back yeah. in the. No, it was like, but I mean, was uh, did Jerry ever take you? Like, was Bob City still active at that time? It was such a great. Where Pony Poindexter would play. No, I wasn't. No, I did, I just just did my own thing at the time. I mean, we 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 worked like six days a week, so we didn't get a chance to. I didn't get a chance to do too much. Plus, I had a child, and right. so. But my my going out and hanging out was a little limited, you know. At the, at that particular <laughs> yeah, time, yeah, no, you were just trying to sing for your supper. I uh, yeah. so so Shad was kind of look. He, I mean, that dude. Everything on mainstream is just fierce. I mean, and I, he, he I think the biggest artists there were. They were all. That's how I met Theravon. Ex- I'm looking at her album on mainstream right now. And in fact, the first, yeah. the, truth be told, the first act that, sh- I don't know if you know this, but the first act that that Shad signed was was Big Brother and the Holding Company without Janice. That was the first record yeah. he ever he ever produced. So, yeah, um, yeah the, the, two, <coughs> the two albums, um, I'm looking here, the first one... Uh, the, can you talk a little bit about being in? The, that was the first time you were in the studio. Yes. Uh huh. 
And you talk a little bit about that experience? Well, they, they, you know, he picked the, I had the top musicians in the industry on that, on both albums. And let's uh, just talk. So right on, that was the first album. Who was, was, was that with Earl Palmer? Who was on that album, those albums, that album? Yeah. I had I had to I think I have one here. Hold on a minute. I'm trying to think who was on there. Got me thinking here. <laughs> That's good. That's what I tried to do, yeah. Um wait a minute, I got here. Because it looked oh. like it was more of like the old guard LA musicians. I don't think the Crusaders came along till Chili Win, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, no, I had let me see, right on oh here it is here. Just a second. I have Blue Mitchell and, let me see, hold on a minute. Oh, my God. Blue freaking Mitchell was on right on. That is sick. Let me see. I'm looking at who was yeah. on there. Hold on yeah. a minute. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Oh, I had uh, Joe Sample. Whoa. Um, uh, Paul Humphrey. Oh, Earl my. Palmer. Carol Kay. Jill Osborne. All these people were on there. I'm sorry, had, do you say Joe Osborne? Joe, Joe Osborne? Yeah, Joe Osborne. Mm-hmm. So, so how how did that work? Because, like, that to me, first of all, was it recorded out in Los Angeles? I re- recorded in Los Angeles, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, like, can you just and talk? Arnie Butler was yeah. the, um, um, and, and Feather did, did, that's when I first met Lena Feather. He did the liner notes. Leonard Feather, I just, this is so, so you come down to L.A., do you remember what, what studio you were in or no? Um, no, I forgot. Not, not important, I, I, this is what I want you to talk about. The idea of, in today's world, my friends too are involved with this, it's unfortunate, in some ways technology has really helped connect us, it connected me and you, but yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, now you have people that perseverate over perfecting a tune, it t- takes four months. They overdub constantly, trying to get to some level of perfection, which just takes all the soul out of the music. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I loved about mainstream, especially, is that there were some clams on those—not necessarily yours, but sometimes there were mistakes, clams. But it was just burning, visceral music. And I just wanted you to talk about the uh, the the recording process was everybody in the room at the same time did you record the rhythm tracks before you sang or oh, did you just I, think, I remember I think I'm trying to think I think everybody was in the room at the same time and I was in this in this little booth little blue booth yes you were in a booth but yet it wasn't like everything was parceled out like rhythm was recorded first and then you no, I think at that time everybody was in in the same the band was in one room and I was in another and it sounds to me like it sounds to me like it happened over a couple of, of different days because yeah, Paul, no, Paul Humphrey and, and Earl Palmer those those I are had, two. Yeah, I had um, Clifford Solomon, King Erickson was on Congress. My hero, I interviewed King. I love King, Dave man. Horn, William Green on tenor sax. Holy cow! Gary Coleman, Victor Feldman, I got um, and Wilton Felder. On bass or sax? On bass. Oh my God. Um. Were you hip to the Jazz Crusaders before that? Uh, uh, not really at that particular time. That's cool. Time. No, I, I love it because there's no reason why you would have been. Yeah, I met them during that album. Can you talk I about, I just, I really, as we enter this new year, Maxine, can you just talk about, I mean, 
Wilton is deep in my soul. So is Joe. Mm-hmm. Sticks, I don't know if Sticks showed up to your second album. I don't know because it, it sounds like Humphrey and Earl Palmer played on your first one. But mm-hmm. can you just talk about those cats and how much they lent themselves to just making it so easy on sessions? They were, they were nice guys to me. That was the first time that I had met them. And and uh, all of the, the, the guys in the band treated me like a lady. I mean, I got I got first class treatment from all of them, and uh, so and in fact, and we, we became friends. I became friends with the Joe Sample and all. The, in fact, they, most of them was on my second album with Bobby Shad. Okay, so the second album, like, how was? Because I mean, you had the, you had Gary Coleman and Victor Feldman. Those are like the top percussionists in the studio scene. So, what and in was, fact, Paul Humphrey. Worked with me at the Etcetera Club. You remember the Etcetera Club here in Los Angeles? The ex- dude, so we, I just want that uh, dude. You're jump, You're blowing me. Uh, dude, that man, that guy was um, Lawrence Welk's drummer. Um, <coughs> Paul Humphrey was ridiculous drummer. I just oh, he was fabulous. He was uh, so. I, so my question is, after the first album, um, did were, did any of the tunes get any kind of even some in some significant? Did anything catch? And do any radio play? Was there any radio play for those tunes? Yes, uh, it, Johnny one time uh, did "Feeling All Right" and see. Oh, I love this. I freaking love this. That was like two or three of them that they, they played on the radio, and and um, all around the world by Tina uh, Titus Turner. That was played. Uh, let me see. What is well, I'm about? curious, though. I want, to, I want you to talk about the first time that you heard one of your tunes on the radio in the car. Oh, God, I'm trying to think. Because that, to I, me, is the magic of regional music at that time. You know, you, you had cats, yeah, like, you had was, bands that would, you had bands that would be based out of Los Angeles, and someone would call them and say, yeah, do you know that Sly Stone's playing your music up in San Francisco? They'd have no clue. Yeah, they, they you know, they just, they just start playing. Of course, with... Leonard Feather being involved, you know, that's how I really got on radio. Explain that. I, I didn't know Feather had a connection to radio. He, yeah, he, was, he had a connection with everything. He I know. He liner notes. Um, in fact, um, when I first came down to Los Angeles to, to sing and work, I worked at a club uh, in Beverly Hills, and he came and gave me a review a, uh, and in, front, in the Los Angeles Times. Was this and after you? It was after you recorded your first album. That was when I first recorded the. Album. On, so Feather just so and who do you have any idea who he, how he got hip to you? Did Chad hip him to you? I'm sorry. I'm just curious about who hipped him to you. He came to see me at the uh, at this club in Beverly Hills. Right? No, I did, but I mean, like, you just randomly, or someone said, "Yo," or someone pulled his coat to you. I guess someone told him. I don't know. I, I just met him at the club. So he wrote a review for the well, local being, paper. Being, at, being, at, being on the music scene at that particular time, Los Angeles was not, it didn't have a, a lot of clubs, you know. Sure. And if you were working at a club in, in, in Beverly Hills, and that was the club where, all, you know, if you, if you wanted to hit the big time. Yeah, get discovered. You, I dig. I know. And, you know, it's funny because San Francisco was really the – the town that was no known more for having live music clubs. Yes. Did you ever play like Basin Street West, or were you primarily in North Beach in San Francisco? No, I, I only did the the uh, like I said the Paper Doll 
there was another club. I only did like two or three clubs in San Francisco. Because at the Paper Doll, that's where I uh, I stayed. I mean, that's that was my club. Well, you, dude, you were getting good bread and good band and everything. Yeah. And 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 uh, as long as they, as I filled the room, that was they they, uh, they were happy. And that's the same when I came to to Los Angeles. I worked at the Eccentric Club for five years. Who was in that band besides Humphrey? Oh God, I had everybody in the band. Uh, David T. Walker. Jerry Who else Hall, was in the band? Not Jerry Hall, but I had. Um, Oh, Jesus. Let me get my... Come on, get that. I need to know who's in this band. Who was in the band? Let me see. It was like David T. Walker? No, let me see. I had my own guys. I love it. I freaking love it. They stayed with me. They, you know, they worked with me for several years. Let's see who I had. I had Jay Grayton. Jay Gr- oh, Jay Great. Dude, he must have been like 16 years old. Yeah, he was my. In fact, I was the first singer that he had ever worked. This with. is on, dude. You just you went to Never Everland on me just now. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I had Jay Grayton, Dan Sawyer, Bill Torma, uh, Bill Mays. Bill uh, Mays, dude, you had some serious cats with you. Uh, uh, Greg Matheson. Oh my. Victor Feldman was on percussion. Woodwin, I had Don Menza. Bill oh my Mays. dear uncle Don, Jesus. Who else? Oh my! This is West Coast, man. Yeah. Hold on. These cats were playing at the Etcetera Club with you? No, they were on my album, but they, the, the, but Jerry, not, I mean, um, Bill Tormon, Dan Sawyer, and and uh, uh, Greg Matheson, all they played at the Etcetera Club. That was my band with Humphrey. Uh, yeah. With Paul Humphrey on drums. That's that's. So <laughs> when that was my band. So so you you got Leonard Feather got you into the pipeline. You you got some radio play. Did you actually what, did you actually were able to go out and tour the record? No, I did. I, I, I stayed there at the club. I did, in fact from that from the um, uh, uh, etc. That's why I started doing the Tonight Show and all these shows. Um, Merv Griffin, uh, Johnny Carson. Yeah. What do you mean doing them, like showing up as a guest or actually being part of the band? I would no, no. I performed on a nightly I, on a nightly basis. Not on a nightly basis. I maybe mean, maybe maybe about once or twice, three times a year. Wow, that is unreal. And, and from the except, I met everybody who was anybody that at the Etcetera Club. All the name known people uh, in music and in film. They all came to the etc. Who in film was like Clint Eastwood coming in? No, I I I, I didn't meet him until later on. Uh, uh, Sid- Sidney Poitier, maybe. Who? Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Uh, I met them, and I met um, Peggy Lee. Oh. Um, uh, let me see. Jeez, anybody who was doing anything came to the club. It was a very popular club. And I, we had a good band. We, it was it was a good show. Was it also like a? It was a club that uh, it would have it would have uh, singers, but it would all like Miles would come there and train and cats like that, or, or train was dead by then. They but would come there, no, they came there. I would work six weeks on and two weeks off. I did that for five years. Six weeks I would work, and then I I had two weeks off, and then they would have other musicians there. But that was my room. In fact, they, on, on the club, they had a big picture of my third album, 
on the side of the club. And you can see it drive down Sunset. You can see that picture. It's, wait, the club is still functioning? No. It, it, after <laughs> I left there, I left there in 1977. Mm. And uh, uh, it, it closed down a little after 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 I left. What, um, and, like, <laughs> um, I guess what I was saying is that when was the club just a vocalese club with, or was it, did it lend itself to instrumental bands too? Uh, um, Meaning like did Cannonball, would, would, would Cats show up in the crowd or would they actually be on the bills there sometimes? Well, after I, on my two weeks off, they would, they would have other people there. I don't remember too much who was working after, you know, when sure. I was off. Sure. How uh, did, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. But they, 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 there were other people. There was other uh, groups that worked there. But basically, when I was, it was my room. And uh, like I say, I was there from uh, 1971 to 1977. The albums that you made, did somebody, did you feel like, I, I hope that, that I asked this the right way, um, who, I guess your 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 sister and your 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 folks were probably already educating you. Get your publishing. Get your publishing. Did you did that? Did that publishing some of the original tunes that you sang on those early albums on mainstream help kind of keep you alive for a while, or at least keep your bank account in good sh- standing? Well, I didn't. I didn't start writing until I went with. Um Monument Records. Okay, so the, the 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 other record, the mainstream records, were all cover songs. No, and in fact, my piano player, um, at Randy Randolph, wrote a couple of songs on there. Randy and Randolph. Who is Randy Randolph? Randy Randolph was he worked with uh, Jerry Hahn. I know. I, I I'm loving. The, I need to know who this cat was man. Yeah, he was he was a top pianist. Wow. He Work with uh, uh, a lot of people. So he he, with, <laughs> he 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 wrote. You guys collaborated on a couple of original tunes. At that particular time, I didn't. But he did. He and Bobby Shad's girlfriend wrote a lot of songs that I did. Um, he did. Let me see. Tomorrow on my mind. Um, let's see. He did right on. That was uh, on there. And let me see what the I don't have the other. So those ca- so basically those Randy was getting publishing for that stuff. Yes. Oh yeah. But you were really you you can stay because it's fascinating. I mean, you have been a live performing musician your whole life. Yes. Yes. You know, Maxie, we're gonna have to. I went, yeah. When I started working after I got out of the working clubs and and I started doing theater. Uh, the first theater I did was Black and Blue with Linda Hopkins, and we did the European uh, version. And that's when I started working in Europe. Well, I was in Europe like 12 years. Well, yeah, because, I mean, your discography just stops. I mean, you clearly went overseas, you know? Yeah, I did. I just, and, Maxine, we're going to have to do set two, because this has been an absolute ball. We've been cooking here for like <laughs> 70 minutes. but I'll, I, I'll have some, I'll, I'll, I'll go through some stuff. Oh, you're doing, dude, you did great. Uh, you did, uh, you know, I mean... <laughs> I just my final question for you in set one, Maxine, is um, okay. How how has music kept your spirit alive, and how have has it made you uh, 
Can you just talk about the metaphysical qualities of healing music? Because I really believe that in this gen- this time, as disheartening as it is in terms of of a lot of things, uh, yeah. what my one of the goals of my show going into year twelve is to make sure that people recognize that musicians are as important as medical doctors. That's true. And I want you to just riff on that. Yeah, it's just, it, it, it keeps you, even though, you know, I have retired but, uh, from music, but music is still in my heart, still in my soul. This is something that you, that will always, I will, when I go to my grave, it will go with me, you know? Yeah. And so I can always, in my, in my mind, in my head, it, it's, it's always there. It's like being, you know, you're, you're, you become your own doctor. <laughs> That's right. I mean, in, in general, you feel like it's, it saved yeah, you. It saved you. It's, it's, it's something that, would, that stays with you, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. That was, the, that was my calling in life. I didn't realize it at the time, but, of course, now that I, I, I know that it, that's what it was. And uh, so, you know, it's, that it stays with me. I don't have to sing a note anymore. In fact, I can very seldom do sing since I lost my hearing. Well, no, you, you sang that Japanese song pretty darn well. <laughs> no, but you know what? It's, it's really, I'm so honored that you kicked off 2023 on the Jake Feinberg Show because, you know, it's one of those things where um, I think also music has cumulative results. I can't tell you the amount of people that I talk to where these certain albums that I might really love and, and they, when they made them at that time, they didn't think they'd amount to anything or they, yeah. you know, they didn't, haven't heard it since that time. And so I just feel like in this continual cycle of, as the continuum of music moves on, it's just important to glean as much information as possible about uh how things came together and yeah you know i think it's just important man it's it's really an honor to connect with you oh thank you <laughs> and I'll, I'll i'll be transcribed i'll get this interview up later i'll send you a link to it and then uh okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be some great stories came out of here so we'll be blasting it all over the, the internet well, if I think of some more, we have to do a part two. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, no. We, we will. We will. Let this breathe for a while. But, yeah, this was a great 70 minutes in the books. We're, we're on fire. Okay. All right. It's just been a pleasure. And and um, talking to you and thinking, because a lot of things that I had, hadn't thought of in a long time. And, it, it, and I'm sure there are other stories that I have to tell. Oh, there definitely are. So we'll do it again, Maxine. Much okay, love. So. All right. Bless your heart. Happy New Year, and God bless you. Thank you, my friend. Back at you. Okay. All right, be cool. All right, bye-bye. Later, bye.